We have to assume there's victims inside until we prove otherwise, not what we're told, not what we think. I think we have that green light under two in, two out to make the decision to go inside to get fast water and obviously an aggressive search going. Angeles. This is Code 3, the Firefighters Podcast, hosted by award-winning journalist Scott Orr. Now, here's Scott. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me today for another edition of Code 3. This is the show that gives you all the information on a firefighting topic you need in about 20 minutes. Let's get started. Do you detect a lack of willingness among your firefighters to take risks? Have company officers or your department policy made two-in-two-out a hard-and-fast rule? Are they lacking passion for the job? Today's guest has been noticing that trend, and he's concerned. Now, let's be clear. No one is advocating that firefighters freelance or even take uncalculated or foolhardy risks. But whether it's making entry at a partially involved structure fire or treating a COVID patient, he's more than a little concerned that risk-taking is not something that all firefighters are prepared to do. Andy points out that's why you took the oaths in the first place, right? Steve Przborowski has more than 30 years of fire service experience. He's a retired deputy chief of training for the Santa Clara County Fire Department in California. He runs Code 3 Fire Training and Education. No relation to this podcast. He has written and contributed to articles, podcasts, videos, blogs, and published four career development books with a fifth on the way. And Steve Przborowski joins me now. Welcome back to Code 3. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate the opportunity to come out here today and uh, get a chance to talk some good shop with you today. Thanks for the opportunity. It's great to have you back. Let's start with the big question. Are you seeing a loss of passion for the job among firefighters? You know, I I am, to cut to the chase. And there's always times whenever I see something um, in my eyes or my experience, there's always that self-doubt or that time I got to look in the mirror and say, is it just me? Is it maybe me getting jaded or maybe me, I don't know, thinking differently? But it seems like that's a common topic that I hear from a lot of people in different parts of the country, from different types of departments. And I say the people I'm hearing it from are the passionate people like like I like to think myself is um, and are. And it seems to be a lack of passion. And, a, and I don't want to point fingers at any age group because I'm hearing and I'm seeing the lack of passion is not just the new folks, but it's also some seasoned veterans too. And I'll be the first to stick up for the younger folks that they only know what they know. So if you're brand new to the fire service or the department or whatever organization you're in and you get there and misery loves company and everyone's complaining about things, there's no passion and everyone's just going through the motions, checking the box. That's probably how you're going to be until you're inspired or pushed to your level. So it does seem to be a common problem. And I don't know if it's every industry. And I know there's some people that want to blame a lot of different things like point fingers at maybe politics, COVID, whatever else it is, but or generations. 
I wish I could put my finger on it, but it does seem to be a lack of passion of just not just taking pride in your work, but learning your job, knowing your job, um, being passionate about the community that you're fortunate to serve, the people that you're fortunate to work with and work alongside. So, yeah, I think passion is a big problem today. Well, you know, people have always complained about their job to some degree. So this would be something worse than that, I assume. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's funny because I both of my parents have passed away. But as I talk to older people that I that I know, whether they're family members or friends that are, you know, I'm 56 years old, but I talk to people that are maybe in their 70s or 80s. Yeah, everyone's always going to complain about their job or their employer. That's just a given throughout history. They're doing it 100 years ago. They'll be doing it 100 years from now. Just like everyone complains about generations, they'll continue to complain about whatever the name is. But, you know, if we look at across the country right now, the fire service used to never have a recruitment issue. And I'm not saying volunteer-wise. I know volunteer departments have always, I think, struggled for struggle, but they're especially struggling now. But career departments used to never have problems. When I was testing to become a firefighter in the early 90s, I mean, there was a one city in the Bay Area, just city of Hayward. At the time, they had six firehouses. So they weren't a large department, but six firehouses. There was going to be three jobs. And there was like 3,000 people would show up for those three jobs. And if it was a department like Los Angeles or LA County, big departments with 100 plus firehouses, there'd be like 20,000 people showing up. Well, as I talk to people in my travel around the country, big departments, small departments, they're not seeing those numbers like they used to. Obviously, volunteer departments are struggling because I think a lot of everyone's trying to compete with everyone's spare time. And I, you know, people don't seem to have a lot of spare time. I get that. And they want to value their time with their family, but there's a lot of competing interests. So I see that the recruitment issue being a big issue today because we're not getting the people, the numbers of people that we have stepping up to the plate. And even the numbers that we do have, which are drastically reduced, you know, it's almost like best of the worst. And I know that sounds funny or sounds weird, but back to passion, you know, we had to, when I was getting on the job, I mean, you had to show your passion to stick apart. Now it's almost like, well, you're a warm body. You pass all the tests, you know, you're not a, you're not a serial killer. You know what? You got, got a decent background, investigate background in your, past. So you know what? We'll hire you. And we can we can be better than that. I'm not saying we can be better in the sense of getting more people. I wish we had more people, but public safety isn't, I think, as popular or sexy as a career as it used to be. But for those people that we do get, it's up to us that are still on the job to try to pass on that passion and pass on that history, pass on that pride, take an ownership. And before we start pointing fingers at younger generations, we got to look ourselves in the face or in the eyes and be able to say, hey, you know what, we're part of the solution, but also potentially part of the problem if we're not doing our part. So do you think today's safety culture is starting to get in the way of taking aggressive action? And might might that be part of the problem? You know, it, it's interesting you say that. I think there's a potential. And before lightning bolts come down and strike me down for being unsafe or being stupid, I'm no, I'm not saying be unsafe, be stupid or reckless, but we work it, we take that oath of office, we accept that oath, and it's a risky business. Whether we're a career volunteer, it doesn't matter. We are signing up to risk our lives for others. And that is the whole goal. But it is interesting you mentioned the safety aspect because I have seen and heard from people that sometimes almost their safety is more important than taking care of the public. And I had somebody in a class, and I can't remember where it was at, actually explain it pretty decently. I mean, it was a guy maybe in his 20s. And he's like, Chief, he goes, with all due respect, he goes, because I was talking about, you know, making sure that we take care of the customers and aggressive search, get water on the fire, get ourselves in those burning buildings, blah, blah. 
He goes, what are we taught from basic EMT school or first aid school, CPR school? The first thing we're taught is scene safety and BSI or body substance isolation. Make sure we have our appropriate PPE on before we even touch a patient. And if we don't or it's unsafe, get the hell out of Dodge. And I go, you're right. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But then I look at here we are as we train people and then we talk. And I think it's I think we've made a lot of good strides in health and wellness because we all know that we we it's a dangerous occupation. We have a higher risk for cancer. We have a higher risk for stress related issues, post-traumatic stress. Health and wellness is a big issue that the world is facing. Number one, even before the pandemic, the world was facing it. But now that just made it even worse. And in the public safety industry, fire, police, CMS, we're even, I think, more susceptible to having issues. I mean, you look at the suicide numbers that are up and you look at cancer numbers. So I'm not trying to downplay the health and wellness, but it's almost like we got to get the pendulum back in the middle. Right when COVID hit back in early 2020, I remember teaching a class right before it got shut down. And there was a lot of unknowns. There was a lot of freaking out because we had mixed information. We didn't know what was going on. We didn't realize it'd be this big of an issue. I think most of us all thought COVID would be like a six-week thing and we'd be done with it. But yeah, right. I remember as we're talking in this class, just having a good open dialogue, this this one firefighter, and I won't mention where he's at, obviously, but he goes, well, chief, he goes, can we stop running medical calls? Do you think we could, and this is during COVID, and what do you mean? Can we just stop running medical calls? And I go, what are you talking about? And the guy goes, I don't want to catch COVID. And this is before all vaccines were out and before we really knew a lot about PPE. And he goes, I don't want to catch COVID and take it home and basically kill my family or myself. And I go, but you'll run inside a burning building, risk your life to save others and may not come out. Well, that's different, Chief. And I'm like, no, it isn't because you took the oath of office to serve and to risk your life. And of course, I know the freak factor is there and there's a lot of unknowns. But I go, no, if your job is to run medical calls, just like fires and rescues and whatever else your fire department runs, you're going to run medical calls. But now, of course, as time went by, we realized there's precautions. You know, obviously, wear your gloves, wear your mask. If the person's coughing, we learn, take the person outside, put a mask on them. Again, this is all before vaccines. But that's when it first came on my radar screen that it's almost like the health and wellness is sometimes clouding people's vision. And I don't mean that in a bad way. And I think the best way I can correlate that to is think of it this way. We teach firefighters in recruit school to be task level people, follow instructions, follow orders, follow rules. When you go to the company officer level, you're thinking more tactically. And then obviously chief officer more strategically, more empowerment at the company officer and chief officer levels versus a firefighter. Hey, just do as you're told. And if you don't have BSI or PPE, you're going to fail that EMT scenario during EMT school. So it's almost like we teach people black and white, but then we expect them to function in a gray world, which this is a gray world. And I think that's where people struggle because they, if they really think about it, no, we are provided with the appropriate PPE in most cases. And even I remember hearing a chief in that organization when things calmed down and we were having a good discussion, the chief of that department goes, hey, you do realize that the EMS PPE that we provide you and all the training gives you more protection from an EMS issue, assuming you follow the protocol, than maybe your fire PPE is because we know even with fire PPE, fully worn, appropriately worn, there's still a slight chance things can come in, whereas EMS PPE is usually proven to be a little bit more stronger by a little fraction. But again, it comes down to communication and trying to just reset that pendulum. I mean, again, I think we're doing a lot of good things to help reduce cancer and help our brothers and sisters out of being safe and hopefully allowing them to not just see their retirement, but live a long, 
long life with their family and their friends and not have it cut short by problems that the job caused that we didn't know how to deal with. So I think we're going to need to empower people, but also get back to more of a balance, which I think is tough because it's easier to peg the needle one way or another of just do this or do that versus, well, do this with a little gray area thrown in there. Long answer, but I think health and wellness is critical, but without a doubt, I think we need to almost get back to remembering what we took the oath of office for, which was the whole focus of we got to get inside those burning buildings because until we're 100% sure that there's nobody in there, and how do we know it's we're sure? Well, we never do know for sure, but we still got to get in there and do an assert, a search when appropriate and get fast water and fast aggressive searches going. That's true, but then there's the whole attitude that if I get hurt, I can't help you. But then you you contrast that with the attitude that firefighters run into the burning building when everyone else is running out. So it's more, to me, a question of do we sometimes bend the rules if that's necessary, or do we just have hard and fast safety rules? Well, and that's the, I think here's the challenge. We have to have rules, I think. I mean, it'd be great to just empower people. Think about it. It'd be nice. Everyone wants to be empowered. Well, I'll use an example. Then why do we have stop signs, speed limits, everything else? If we did not have stop lines or speed, stop lines or speed limits, most people would probably do the right thing and be respectful. But of course, we already know there's enough idiots in the road that would just even take it more. So the challenge is, and, and for I hate to say it, for liability purposes, we have to have rules. But also from a training purpose, rules and structure do help provide discipline and also a, a, um, a form or a, or a pattern or a pathway for people to make decisions. Well, here's the challenging part. Like a lot of new company officers, here's the problem with promoting people to company officer. They're living in a black and white world as a firefighter or engineer, which is their job. And then they get company officer and there's still the rules. But now they got to function in that gray area and they actually got to make decisions. But so many company officers I hear and see are so scared to make it I mean, a drastic decision. Something simple as two in, two out. And I say simple because that freaks, I think it's one of the most misunderstood laws that are out there, two in, two out. And I say that because I talk to a lot of captains. And of course, the standard answer is, well, I can't go inside that burning building until I have four people assembled, you know, two outside, ready to make a rescue and all the other criteria. And I have to explain to people, you do realize there's an exception to that two in, two out. And basically the exception is not known, not confirmed. Not, it's not known or confirmed, but we hear those words. That's how we would train people. It has to be a known rescue, a confirmed rescue, meaning you see, hear, or are told something. No, the OSHA exception is basically if emergency rescue activities need to be performed. Yeah, emergency rescue activities need to be performed. Then we can violate two in, two out, break the law. And I explain that to people and they go, what are emergency rescue activities? Okay, you pulled up in Big Red. We are the fire department, right? So if we're pulling up in the fire department, we are emergency rescue activities. And guess what's going on? If there's smoke, there's probably a fire. There's probably, we have to assume there's victims inside until we prove otherwise, not what we're told, not what we think. I mean, if the building is fully involved, literally the rarity, fully involved, every orifice, heavy fire, blah, blah, blah. Okay, those are the exceptions. I get that. The odds of surviving that are pretty slim, but most of the fires we pull up to are not fully involved, which means I think we have that green light under two in, two out to make the decision to go inside to get fast water and obviously an aggressive search going. But again, when I ask captains about that gray area, emergency rescue activities, a lot of them freak out because I, and I hear, I know why, because when I was a captain, I wanted black and white. 
Well, now as a chief, I appreciate the gray area because I think it gives us flexibility. I like people being empowered, but then I get the captains that say, well, I don't want to get in trouble if I get someone injured or killed or don't do my job. I don't want to get in trouble for violating two and two out. Okay. I get it. But when's the last time someone I've, I mean, there may have been some people that have been in trouble, but it hasn't been that well publicized for doing the right thing at the right time for the right reason. So I think that's that challenging part, especially when you get to the mid-level supervisor, the company officer. Yeah, you got to have some structure, but you you really need to empower them, but also support them with the decisions they make. And you know what? We may kill or injure a firefighter and ourselves going in, but if that's the case, hopefully it's for the right reasons, meaning that we have a good belief that emergency rescue activities, meaning we need to get inside and do an aggressive search based on the intel that we have, or most of the time don't have. Well, that's true. You, the information you get from the average bystander is woefully inadequate. Tell me about it. The whole, I think they're not home. I think they are home. They might be home. How do we teach or convey, how do we convey to these company-level officers that their liability is not as important as making absolutely sure that we've done the search. You know, that's the hard part because some of it comes down to obviously comfort level from the command staff. I'll use an example. When I became the training chief years ago, our two and two out language did not mirror OSHA. It was actually stronger than OSHA. And it used our policy, internal policy was it must be a known known or confirmed rescue, which makes it pretty absolute. You know, I heard it, I see it, or someone tells me, and I think it's go. Well, known is pretty absolute. Well, emergency rescue activities, obviously, as I tell people, hey, you got, there's a reasonable belief there's somebody inside. And I'm like, well, what's that reasonable belief? Something that your gut may tell you, may not tell you, and something you can live with yourself for the rest of your life. Because if you choose to not go out, not go inside, and now you have a civilian die that you could have made a difference on. I don't want that on my conscience on my deathbed. On the flip side, I don't want to kill or injure a firefighter either. You're darned if you do, darned if you don't. So again, back to our policy. I remember asking our new fire chief at the time going, hey, I why do we have a policy that is stricter than OSHA? And I remember the fire chief, he goes, that was the previous chief's comfort level. And I go, well, shouldn't we be doing everything in the right reasons for the citizens? And he goes, no, he goes, we do, we should, we will. And he goes, but you got to realize, Steve, you've never been a fire chief. He goes, the fire chief obviously is a stressful position. You don't want to ever kill or injure anybody. You don't want to kill, kill or injure a civilian either on your watch. But this fire chief had obviously had some, you know, did not want to be in that position. So he just made it a little more stricter. I mean, we don't get a lot of fires. So I can't say that that and I don't think it led to any civilians needlessly dying because we didn't get that many fires. So it's not like it was a bad or reckless policy by any means. But, but as the new training chief, I go, fire chief, I go, do you have a problem with me changing that policy just to mimic OSHA to give us more flexibility? And I naively, I thought our captains would love it because it gave them more empowerment to make the make the call at three o'clock in the morning before the battalion chief arrives. But it was Interesting. After I talked to a lot of captains, they go, I liked it the old way, meaning known or confirmed rescue. I go, but you can now go in more burning buildings. Didn't you sign up to go fight fire and save lives like pretty much all of us did? Yeah, but I don't want to kill or injure anybody. But I go, but well, but he goes, hey, the policy makes it pretty clear. If it's not known or confirmed, I wait for that second engine to get there. Now I'll have at least four people on scene and I don't have to think of it, not think about it, be a box checker, but it took the liability and it took the stress out of the decision making versus the Three o'clock in the morning, you got a go no go decision. 
And I and it's interesting because I got we got more pushback from captains because they they were they wanted to be empowered, but then there was more empowerment, which they didn't like because then they felt the liability was on them. So back to your question, I think the challenge is the command staff really needs to support it. I think through training, through actual real experiences, by not just walking the walk, but talking the talk. I mean, by just like I said, by supporting the troops that make those decisions. And when, when the troops don't make the decisions, like I was listening on the radio on the scanner to a fire for one of the local jurisdictions a couple of weeks ago. It was just like a weekend. It was a weekend. It was a Saturday at two o'clock in the afternoon. And I remember the first in captain gets unseen. I think they're just so programmed. They're just like, hey, we're on scene with three-person companies. They didn't have four people. The three-person company, we're establishing command. And you know what? Uh, we're going to wait for the next engine to arrive. And then we'll have two in, two out. So we'll go inside. And I am i don't know. I'm not there. I'm just listening to the radio. So I'm like, okay, this damn thing must be pretty well involved. And there must be everybody out in the front porch, you know, that might may live there. Well, the battalion chief, who wasn't even there, gets on the radio, goes, basically, what's your percent of involvement in the structure? And the captain goes, oh, we're about 25% involved right now. And the chief, without missing a beat on the radio, you shouldn't give orders as a BC if you're not there. I get it. But here was a heads up BC that basically said, if that thing's not fully involved, get yourself in that burning building, get a search going, and you're command, you're mobile, and that next rig gets there, that, that officer will take command from you from outside and then support you with his crew. Get inside that building now. Don't wait. And then the captain, of course, okay, no problem. We're going in. We're going to violate two in, two out. But I I listened to that, and I was talking to some friends afterward, and it came back to the same thing like EMT school. We're so programmed in to just, okay, got to wait for two in, two out, because that's the policy. But then, no, you have the flexibility to perform emergency res- rescue activities and almost get a get out of jail free card. And I and I don't mean to make make light or make fun of anything bad happening because God forbid you do kill or injure a firefighter. Nobody wants that on their conscience. But if OSHA comes in, does investigation, I can't speak for OSHA, but they're going to come. What decisions you make? What was your policy? What was your decisions you make? And if you basically followed what the policy was of, okay, I had emergency rescue activities, something bad did happen. Someone lost their life. You know, yeah, it sucks to have that in your conscience, but it, how would you like to just stay outside, not do anything, and then find out three little kids died inside? I, w- I don't want that either. I mean, it's so I think supporting your officers, training with your officers, and just encouraging that. I mean, not recklessness or stupidity, but just encouraging good, aggressive behaviors on the fire ground because it, we all know the faster we get people out of harm's way, the better chance they have of surviving. And the faster we can get water on that fire, the better chance we have of keeping that thing at a low level without having to get out of control and harming the victims and harming us. That's true. And we'll leave it there. Steve Przborowski, thanks for talking with me on Code 3. My pleasure, Scott. I really appreciate the opportunity to spend a little time to chat. Basically, fire... I liken this to a firehouse kitchen table, just good conversation around the table, just with the, just with two of us. But, uh, you know, it's uh, it's always fun talking shop and without a doubt, always fun talking with different people. And there's more about Steve's viewpoint on acceptable risk on our website at Code3Podcast.com slash oath. It's worthwhile reading, so take a look. If this topic hit home for you, please tell a firefighter about this podcast. It's a great way to get more people listening, so I'd really appreciate it. Chances are they will too. Alright, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next time with more, and I hope you'll join me. 
I'm Scott Orr, and until then, stay safe. To contact us, get more information on today's show, or to subscribe to the podcast, go to Code3Podcast.com.